but you can go ahead now and turn in your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter eight. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers and students will be more than happy to hand one to you. So you can just raise your hand and they'll bring it out to you. If you don't own a Bible, this is yours to keep as a little gift from us to you. And as you're turning there, the message that the Lord has laid on my heart to share with you this morning is an extension of one of the recent live night topics we've had at youth. And we run our youth in two separate facets and our live nights deter, or, or defer from our agape nights in that at agape, the focus is smaller community, meeting in homes across Muskoka with a larger emphasis on intentional discipleship, intentional study, and intentional discussion. And our live nights focus on larger, broader community. We meet at St. Dom's here in Bracebridge. And the, there's a larger emphasis on games and hangout and an introductory to Bible themes and who this guy Jesus is. It's meant to be kind of like a place where we can invite our friends. It's an easier platform to invite our friends from school out to. And we're in the middle of this series at Live Nights called What Does the Bible Say About and Fill in the Blank? And this is kind of like a rebuttal to what our uh, culture is saying about certain issues today. And we looked at what does the Bible say about hate and injustice? And what does the Bible say about dating and relationships? And what does the Bible say about identity? And that right there, identity, is what we are going to be looking at this morning. What does the Bible say about my identity? What, what, what is my identity? What defines me? Or maybe a better question to ask is, how do we define our being? And does that definition line up with how God defines us? And this morning, we're going to unpack a biblical view of where our identity is rooted in the confidence that we can have in it, and in doing so, by contrast, are going to uncover a worldly deception of where our identity is rooted and how it leads to brokenness and false hope. But before we dive in, in order for any of this to be possible, let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. That's the only way that this is going to uh, be true in our lives and make, make sense to us if the Spirit moves. So would you join me as we pray? Father God, you are so good and you are so holy. You are so righteous, Lord, and we thank you that we are in your presence this morning. It's a privilege to be in your presence this morning. Right now, God, we just pray that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would speak to us through your word and reveal to us the truth of who we are. Reveal to us the truth that our identity is found in you. And it's not found in anything else that we put our hope in, but it's found solely in you. And I pray that your spirit would just pierce through our hardened hearts at times, Lord, in this area. And that you would reveal who we are. That's what we ask. We trust that you are going to do so in a mighty way, Lord. We thank you for how you're going to move. And we pray this in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Romans 8, starting in verse 14. Hopefully you're all there. It says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that's where we're going to stop. 
Now, I should be able to just read that once. Okay, read it once, close my Bible, pray, and say, hey, we can all go home early because of the clarity and sheer magnitude of a passage like that. But, you know, if you're, if you're anything like me, sometimes, even though the truths of Scripture are just screaming at you and they're staring at you in the face, you pay as much attention to them as you pay drive, uh, speed limits. You know, like the, the truth of the road is like at 60 kilometers an hour, but you and I both know that's we're not paying attention to that. 60 is just another way of saying like 80. <laughs> and for all the police officers in the room here, or all the parents of young drivers, like that's the youth guy. And he's, I'm not saying that I'm necessarily condoning this line of thinking or thinking that there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just being honest. And I know we can relate to that. Many of us in this room, if we are honest, we can relate to that truth as well. You know, we, we, we see the truth. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't necessarily pay attention to it. And I think it's our human inherent nature that we ignore truth or be ignorant to it. How many of us noticed in that passage, in those four verses, that there were five amazing truths? And further, how many of us, after noticing them, if we did indeed notice them, were moved to a response in our spirit as we identified with each one? See, there'd be gold here. Gold that we can take to the bank and live off the interest for eternity. Five truths, real quick, you don't have to write them down. You can if you, if you want to, but the five truths were all who are led to the Spirit are sons of God. Okay, we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we received a spirit of adoption as sons. That's truth three. Truth four, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and since we are children, we are also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, and that's amazing. Now this morning, we're gonna put the bulk of our focus on one truth as our primary truth. The other ones are gonna be treated kind of as supplementary, even though this is a very good case that all five of them are pretty primary. We are gonna reference them all, but we're gonna focus in on one of them. And so here's our primary truth and our first point this morning, and we're gonna spend the bulk of our time on this. And it's this, my identity is rooted in the fact that I'm a child of God. My identity is rooted in the fact that I'm a child of God. So take a look at verse 14 again. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. My identity is rooted in the fact that I'm a child of God. Okay, Russ, but what's the significance of this? What does, that, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be a child of God? How does that relate to my identity? What's so important about that title and why should I even care about it? Well, to answer that, we need to first look at the context with which Paul is writing this. And in doing so, we're gonna go a little, on a little uh, ride through Paul's letter and do a little bit of Gospel 101. We're going to go through this quickly, so, so pay attention and follow along with me, because the key to this is located at the start of this chapter, where Paul makes one of the most profound and life-changing statements of truth found anywhere in Scripture. And Paul says this in Romans 8, 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And many of us in this room resonate with that truth. 
We are thankful for that truth. And we know that that's a pretty remarkable statement of truth, considering its juxtaposition to how Paul begins this letter in chapter 1. He begins in chapter 1 by saying the wrath of God is being revealed towards all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. And he continues in chapter 3 by saying that there is no one who is righteous and no one who does good, meaning all of us deserve that wrath for our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. Why? Because we disobeyed a perfect, holy, righteous being, and that perfect, holy, righteous being demanded a perfect, holy, righteous punishment. And that punishment was death and death eternally, And that punishment is by his choosing because he's judge. So what happened? How did Paul go from doom and gloom to the wrath of God is coming for all the ungodliness and unrighteousness and all of us are in that category to saying in chapter eight, oh, and by the way, there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in fact, we're all adopted sons. How did that shift? What happened to make that truth claim knowing that this truth claim is also there? Well, Paul continues in Romans 5 by stating that just as one man's trespass, meaning one's sin, and specifically Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men, so the act of righteousness, one act of righteousness, leads to justification in life for all men. But what was that act of righteousness? The act of God himself, Jesus Christ, taking the humble form of man, living the life that we could never live, but the life that God requires us to live, fulfilling God's perfect plan of redemption for us by by being obedient to his death and his death on the cross so that God's wrath could be satisfied for man's sin and at the same time his love would be demonstrated for those who listen. That's the act of righteousness that's being spoken of. And then that act of righteousness becomes our righteousness because Jesus didn't stay dead in the grave. We don't worship a dead man. We worship a risen Savior. And God raised up Christ victoriously from death so that we too could be raised out of the death due for our sin and into the life promised in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And our righteous standing before God is now justified. Because God chooses, chooses to see the righteousness of his son as the righteousness of all those who believe that Jesus is Lord. And for all of us in this room that believe that, there's now no condemnation for our sin against God. Because God now sees us in right standing before him. And here's where it brings us to where we are in our passage today. In Romans 8, he then adopts us out of the family of Satan, out of the family of this world that's destined for destruction, and adopts us into his own family. And gives us the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father. So that that brings us now to where we are. That's the context leading to why Paul is saying what he's saying in Romans 8. And as we continue now, I want you to look at that word adoption in verse 15 and circle it or underline it or highlight it or however, and then write, if you have a space to write in there, I want you to write mutual agreement. You're like, why? Why Why would I do that? Why would I write mutual agreement? It says adoption. Because every time 
we read this, every time we look at the, this passage, I want us to remember that the adoption Paul is speaking of is a mutual agreement between you and God. What do I mean by that? Well, the adoption Paul is referencing is slightly different than the adoption process that we know of today. And it was a custom that was prevalent among the Romans in the first century, and it looked like this. A man with no son of his own would approach another family and request to have one of their adult sons join his own family. And this was possibly to carry on his family name because he had none of his own to do so. And the two parties would then come before a magistrate of Rome, and the man would ask, would you be my son? And if the other party said, yes, I will, then they now had a legally binding contract that adopted this son out of his first family and into his new one. Now, the emphasis of this illustration of adoption that Paul is using, the focus of it is on the transaction. Think about this for a second. Here is an adult son being approached by another man asking if he would instead be his own son, knowing he has a family of his own over here. And this adult son has the maturity and cognitive sense to evaluate his situation and determine his decision. On the other hand, here's here's a man who, who comes to another family and determines that whom he is choosing is qualified to be a member of his family. This is not just a random selection. This is calculated and full of desire. He's saying, okay, I need to carry this on. I want a son of my own, so I'm going to go, this family, you know what? This one looks fantastic. They are right for what I want and right to be in my family. Brings them before the magistrate and says, would you be my son? And this is exactly what God and you have done the moment you gave your life to the Lord. God did not just come to you and extend an invitation for salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, which in itself is absolutely amazing. But he also extended invitation into his family as your heavenly father by saying, will you be my son? Will you be my daughter? You then presented with this invitation and having the ability to make cognitive decisions determined that your response was gonna be, yes, I will. God, you will be my God. I give you my life. You then left your family of this world, and that's not your physical family. It's a metaphor to the family of of this world, the family of destruction, the family headed by Satan, and were adopted into the family of God, which leads to glory and salvation. But notice, none of this is possible without God first extending his invitation out to you. That man needed to go to that family first and say, I desire this one. Then the transaction happened. Uh, as I was doing my, my study, um, this man, Robert Haldane, he's a brilliant theologian. He's got a huge exposition on the book of Romans. It's literally bigger than the Bible itself on just one book. And he says this about this uh, allusion to the uh, illustration of adoption. He says, The allusion to this custom reminds believers that they are not the children of God otherwise than by his free and voluntary election. 
and that thus we are under a far more powerful obligation to serve him than their own children are to obey them, since it is entirely by his love and free good pleasure that they have even been elevated to this dignity. Isn't that amazing? Paul wanted his readers to know that they are children of God because God wanted them to be. You're a child of God because God first wanted you to be. He first chose you to be. And in our acceptance of this invitation, we are now obligated to serve him out of the extension of our love and gratitude because of his love and good pleasure that he even offered us this privilege. And that is why Paul says in verse 15, we can cry, Abba, Father. Because that term, Abba, Father, is a term of endearment, a term reserved for that close, intimate relationship between a father and his child. My daughter's uh, 13 months old now, and she's at this stage where she's beginning to talk and is greatly aware uh, of her surroundings, and I absolutely love it. One of my favorite things uh, in, in my day is when I come home from work or I come home from being out for a few hours, and I come into the front door, and I walk up the stairs into our living room, and I peer around the corner slowly, and I see her wherever she may be. She could be uh, at this little carpet area with her toys, or she's by the, 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 the couches over here, or she's in the kitchen eating anything, and I know that as soon as I peer around the corner, there she is waiting for me to come around the corner. And as soon as we make eye contact, her eyes light up and her smile goes from grin from ear to ear. And she looks for anything around her to grab and points it and looks at me and walks towards me and goes, Dai, Dai. Or for the sake of this illustration, she would go like, Abba, Abba. And my heart melts every single time. My little girl saying, Daddy. But not only is Abba father a term reserved for that close, intimate relationship between father and child, but it also represents this childlike trust that the young child places in his or her Abba or his or her daddy. I mentioned that Audrey's beginning to talk now, but she's also beginning to walk. And anyone who's been around a child in this process knows the favorite game of, hey, I'm going to sit here, my wife or whoever's going to sit there, and we're going to make you walk between us. And it's hilarious. You walk to mommy, okay, okay. You walk to daddy, okay, okay. And at first, Audrey would like hardly let go. She'd be like, uh-uh, forget this. I got like... Am I going to walk? No, I can't do it. And I'll grab back onto my wife, or she'll grab back onto me. And after a little bit of encouragement, after a little bit of like uh, saying, hey, no, no, it's okay. Like, let go. Like, we're, we're going to catch you. Just, just walk forward. And after a while, when she realized her life wasn't in any real danger, she's like, okay, I'll try this. And she goes and she walks and she takes those like drunk Neanderthal, I'm going to destroy the small little village steps towards people. And you have no idea which way she's going to fall. And she's walking, she's doing real good. She's like, look at me, look at me, I'm doing really good. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden she like trips over her feet or she doesn't, she can't compensate for that like millimeter difference between the carpet and the hardwood. And she's like, oh no, it's like a cliff. And she like goes to fall forward, but her eyes are still focused on me and her, her smile is still there because she knows even though she's falling at a million miles an hour this way, I'm gonna catch her. She knows nothing is gonna happen to her. Why? Because she trusts me because I'm her daddy, I'm her father. And that's the picture that Paul is illustrating here. 
that just as we understand the love and relationship as a father to our children or as a parent to our children, or just as we understand the relationship as a child to our own father, that this is the same love and relationship we entered into in the family of God the moment we said, God, you will be my God, or I will be your child. But this is only greater because the measure of God's love greatly exceeds our own love. Now, I do understand and I do acknowledge that there are some people in this room who, due to the reality of the brokenness of our world, do not share that same connection to this illustration of God as a father as many of us may. To anyone here where the idea of God as a father is a broken or foreign concept to you because of the relationship with your own father is either estranged or it's non-existent and this is something that I can, that I can personally relate to where you have been so desperate and desperately seeking the affection and desperately seeking the attention of your own father, but you have been let down over and over and over and over again. And even though that, that wells up inside you and you get so angry, angry to the point where you think you're even become calloused about it because you go, oh, well, whatever. But all the while your heart is desperately craving that relationship of a father, if that's you this morning, um, something my grandfather told me, and my grandfather has been the like, spiritual anchor in my life. And he said, Russell, even though your father may let you down, your heavenly father never will. Because our God is a good father. He has chosen you. He has chosen me and he has qualified me to be his son and extended out his invitation to be our, his adopted son or adopted daughter all because of his immeasurable love for us, his immeasurable love for you. Our earthly parents may let us down at times, but our heavenly father never will. Don't let Satan allow that, 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 that picture of God as a good father to be twisted because our own relationship with our own fathers doesn't add up. Allow God to show you that he's a good father. But where does my identity come in all of this, Russ? Where, where does my identity fit into this picture? Well, up to this point, we've been looking at the foundation of our identity, where it's truly rooted and now it's time to look at its realization. And that brings us to our second point and our last point this morning. And it's this. If our first point was my identity is rooted in the fact that I'm a child of God, our second point is my identity is realized in the fact I am a child of God. For us, you just like changed one word and moved the emphasis around. And that's exactly what I did. You see, our first point focuses on the knowledge of the truth of our sonship or of our daughtership, whereas now we want to move from knowledge here and bring it to realization and understanding here. Look at verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You notice that? It says, bears witness with our 
spirit that we are children of God. Meaning the seat of our emotions and character, our soul, pardon me, our spirit, according to Paul in our sonship or daughtership of God, bears witness that that is who we are. And that's not only true of how we are to see ourselves, but that is also true in how God sees you. So notice again, it says the Spirit, capital S, Spirit himself. Well, who is this Spirit? This is the Holy Spirit, okay? The Spirit of God. It bears witness with your spirit that that is who you are, saying, yes, I agree. You say you're a child of God? Yeah, I say you're my child. And that's where our identity is. So let me ask you this question. Does your spirit bear witness to the fact that you are a child of God? Has that become a realization for you? Or does your spirit bear witness to what Paul says we have been adopted out of? And that is slavery to fear. And in context, Paul is referring to the fear that comes from the law. The fear of never being good enough and always being crushed under the weight of legalism. The fear of trying and trying and trying, but never being satisfied. And that's really what we do, isn't it, when we place our identity in anything other than its true roots. We try to be satisfied in our souls of who we are, but the moment the thing that we have put our satisfaction and comfort in changes or is taken away or is is challenged or doesn't feel right anymore, what then? We become this identity chameleon, you know, where we shift and adapt to the newest thing and then what we can identify with or feel comfortable in. But if we're really truly honest with ourselves, that doesn't fix anything. It just leaves us feeling more confused and leaves us feeling more broken. And that's what happens when we are slaves to fear. But for those of us here who have accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into that. No, we've received the spirit, the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, because this passage says all who are led by the spirit are sons of God. And we have been adopted out of a family of destruction where fear runs rampant, and we've been adopted into a family of hope and salvation. Where we stand before God as he extends his invitation and says, will you be my son or will you be my daughter? And we graciously accept and say, yes, I will, because there's nothing. We know that there's nothing in this world that's more satisfactory than what is found in Jesus Christ. And once we have done that, the spirit that God has given us, breathed into us the moment we were conceived, bears witness to the fact that we are now a legitimate son or daughter of God most high. And his spirit, the Holy Spirit, shares that testimony as God acknowledges our sonship. And since we are sons and daughters, we also become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, as mentioned in verse 17 there, meaning we get to share in the inheritance that is due Jesus Christ and due his name for the work that he has done. We get to share that. Amen. And our hearts are so full of gratitude and joy so that when God comes around the corner of the hallway into our living rooms, our eyes light up and our smiles grow bigger and bigger and we grab anything around us and we go, I want to show you this. And something inside us urges us to move forward, stumble towards him, walk and cry out, Daddy, Daddy, 
Because that's who we are. We are his son or daughter. That needs to be our realization that we are beloved, adopted children of God. And as the worship team comes up, they're going to lead us in a song. But I want to set the stage a bit for the song that we are about to sing as a congregation. There are some of us here this morning where we know we have been living in fear. Even though we've accepted Christ as our personal Savior, we know that we still wrap up our identity and maybe it's our success. Or maybe it's our public image or our social status or our beauty or our Instagram profile where we make sure that everyone sees the perfect version of our lives. But we know that we're just competing with each other or we're competing with ourselves to maintain a lifestyle that we're tired of and exhausted with, but because we're so invested in it, we just keep feeding it. We need to realize that that is not what defines us. We need to be brought back to the realization that God is the qualifier of our identity. And he has called you son or he has called you daughter. Or maybe this morning you might be like, you know, that, 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 that can't be for me. I, I, I don't know this God yet, but that, that, that can't be for me. He can't want me as a son or he can't want me as a daughter. You know, it might be because the things that we have chosen to identify with or identify in, if brought to the surface, we believe that there's no way that God would be able to want me as a son or daughter. But let me point you to the picture of the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son where the father is waiting on the porch, waiting on the porch for his son to come home, looking at the horizon, even after his son despised him and demanded his inheritance early, which in the context of how that was told, it would be understood as like, dad, I want you dead. I want my inheritance now. I can't wait till you're dead to get it, so I want it now. And even after that, the moment that the father then sees that son coming over the horizon and notices him coming over, he runs out to meet him. And not only does he run, but he brings clothes and he brings the family ring. But all his son needed to do was come home. Would you come home this morning? Come home to the family of God. Because as God stands here right now, extending this invitation to you, saying, will you be my son? Will you be my daughter? All you need to do is say, yes, I will. So wherever our hearts may be this morning, my prayer is that we see our identity is rooted in the fact that we are a child of God. And that our hearts are moved to that very realization. So when we stand right now and sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Our spirit bears witness to that truth. And we sing it with conviction. And nothing can shake that foundation of our identity. Let me pray. God, again, you are so good. God, you are so holy and you are so righteous. Lord, I pray that we would come to that true understanding, that realization that we are your beloved sons and daughters. For those who have placed faith in you, that that is where our identity is found. That's where we can have hope and trust because we know that you have qualified us for it and agree to it. Lord, that we no longer need to put our identity wrapped up in the things that we do or the way that we feel, but it's who you say we are. 
that gives us confidence. That gives us unshakable confidence knowing that you are our Father and you are our good Father. So Lord, help us to respond to that this morning, to either come back to that realization or to accept you for the first time saying, I want in. I want to be a part of that family. God, as we sing this song right now, may may this be an anthem for us that we can declare this with boldness, we can declare this with every ounce of conviction in our hearts and souls. Lord, may you be praised. We pray this in your name. Amen.